Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 123, and we're reviewing My Hero Academia Season 6, Part 1. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode. My Hero is back, and I have things to say about it. Are they good things? Are they bad things? We'll find out shortly. Yeah, I remember when it was first announced that My Hero Season 6 was due to premiere in fall 2022. I was I didn't really have a reaction to the news. It was kind of like, okay, there's a new season of My Hero. I think because a lot of us just felt kind of underwhelmed with Season 5. But who knows if that will be the case for Season 6, right? I mean, we're, we're going to talk about it in a couple minutes, so... But before that... We thought it'd be fun to talk about um, non-anime things. You had a specific topic you wanted to cover, which I think is a hot topic right now. Yeah, so I think right now the buzz in the pop culture sphere is the premiere of HBO Max's TV series The Last of Us, which is based on a video game by a PlayStation video game by Naughty Dog, also called The Last of Us which I think it originally released in 2010 and has gone through numerous re-releases and remakes. I think they just they did one recently for people to, to pique interest in people watching the TV show. And so it premiered earlier this month. And I think there's a stigma, of course, around adaptations of video games, of anime, of things in in those spheres that might have detracted people from certain people, especially the ones that I'm looking at right now, from, from <laughs> wanting to watch this adaptation. Hello, it me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm in the camp where I won't knock it until I give it a watch. And that was the case with the live-action Cowboy Bebop on Netflix. And so I, I had the opportunity to watch the series premiere a couple days ago and i gotta say it wasn't that bad (laughs) are you sure about that (laughs) i mean i think with how strong the source material was uh, there was no way that they could really fuck this up because the last of us already had a great story um, in the game so all you have to do is just show it in in tv form and I think it translated really well. I know that's not the case with every story that's adapted from a video game or an anime, but yeah, I think they they knocked it out of the park with this one, uh, especially because the first half of it felt like it was a one-to-one recreation of the introductory part of the game. Famous last words. There's no way they can <laughs> fuck it up. How many times have we said that? But no, in all seriousness, I, I've heard the the positive remarks about the first episode of The Last of Us and a lot of them coming from people in the gaming community who know and love the game. So I am very interested in it, but I'm the type, um, if you've been listening to our podcast long enough, you know that I shy away from live action adaptations in any pop culture realm, especially anime, just because we've been burned by them so many times. I can easily name more shitty adaptations than I can 
good adaptations. So it's not that I don't want to watch it. I just tread carefully. I, I just wait. I let other people be the pioneers and, you know, watch it first and start to share some initial thoughts um, or ratings for it. And then based on that, I'll decide, like, do I actually want to give it a chance? So what I'm hearing, it's only one episode, but what I'm hearing so far, my interest is peaked. I just want to give it a few more episodes and hear what everyone has to say before I actually commit to it. Only because I'd hate for my my hopes to be high, watch the first episode, and then suddenly we're all disappointed because it starts to decline like halfway through the season. I mean, of course you need to have that cautious optimism when it comes to any adaptation. Uh, I, I think what's unique with The Last of Us is that it's being produced by the film and TV studio branch of PlayStation that they just recently created. And so they have a lot more input into the show and make, making sure that it's going in the right direction and is being presented in the right sort of way so as not to generate that negative response that is always synonymous with adaptations. That might not have been the case with the Uncharted film that just came out. <laughs> I know people w were pretty critical of that. but The one with Tom Holland? Yeah, Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg because that was not, I guess, that was not the Uncharted that people had wanted. But with The Last of Us, again, I think they're, they're taking a little bit more care. I know I've said this with the Cowboy Bebop live action that they wanted to take more care with the source material and then that just ended up being hot garbage. But I think with PlayStation being involved in this production, that gives it a little bit more hope. It's just funny, though, because Pedro Pascal is playing Joel, and he has already played the Mandalorian. So it's, it feels like he's being typecasted into this role of always having to protect like a kid. <laughs> so, he's the guardian. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to, I think there's nine episodes in this first season. I'm assuming they will use the second season to adapt The Last of Us Part Two, which... I wasn't so hot on how that story panned out. But watching the show and thinking of how you are kind of averse to adaptations made me think if there is one adaptation of a video game or anime out there that you would say was pretty good, then what would it be? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Before I answer it, though, I do want to comment on The Last of Us video games. I'm in the same boat as you. I loved the first Last of Us, um, played it and just like immediately fell in love with the story and hoped that they would not make any more because I think the way it ended was fantastic, but then they did make more. And even though I played through that game and I platinumed it, I didn't like it nearly as much as the first game. And the, the tough part about platinuming The Last of Us 2 is that you had to basically replay two-thirds of the game in order to get the platinum trophy. So it's like I was forced to play it almost twice over. So it was like a, I'm not going to say torturous experience, but it was really annoying to have to do that, especially when I just didn't enjoy it nearly as much as the first game. Um, so yeah, I, I think... It, it, with with the TV show, like I want you to keep me posted on how it's progressing and let me know if you genuinely think that I'll enjoy it because 
You know me better than anyone. Uh, and if you think I will. Oh, I know you won't. <laughs> but I, I just think, you, I hope you give it a chance. <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe I will like it. Because to your point, to your, your question, um, there have been some adaptations that I thought were pretty solid. I A lot of these are probably going to be more, not like old school, but um, dated references. Just because, again, I have shied away from live action adaptations because they have been pretty poo-poo in recent years. But some that come to mind that I think were really good were, uh, so I would say the the Angelina Jolie Tomb Raider. I don't remember mm. if they had multiple movies. I think they did. I'm, I'm talking specifically about the first one. I thought that was pretty damn good. Granted, it may not have aged the best over the over the years, and I haven't seen it in a long time. But I just remember, you know, growing up playing Tomb Raider and watching that movie feeling like, hey, this is a pretty solid adaptation. Like, it's not perfect, but I think jo- Angelina Jolie was a great cast for that because she just kind of embodies, you know, that Lara Croft-esque-ness. Um, and I feel like they stayed pretty true to, like, a really interesting story that I could see being in an actual Tomb Raider game. I don't remember if the story was actually pulled from a game or if it was like an original story based off of Tomb Raider. But either way, I thought that one was pretty good. I'm looking at a list of films based on video games. I think there were two Tomb Raider movies from that era, the 90s, early 2000s. And I know there was the reboot with was it uh, Alicia Vikander? In the I heard role? that one was really bad. And yeah. I heard that she's not even coming back for the role. It was so bad. Yeah, I don't know if they're trying to reboot that reboot now. Um, I never watched the Angelina Jolie films, but I, I do remember those were all the rage. I would also say the first Resident Evil. I don't know. What is that that actress's name? Um, starts with an M? Um, Mil- Mila Jovovich? Yeah, Mila Jovovich. Again, it may not have aged the best. I actually did watch that one recently, like within the past year. And it is campy when you watch it now. But when it first came out, like I thought, again, like this is a pretty solid Resident Evil adaptation. Whether or not it's an actual story from Resident Evil, I'm not sure. I didn't play a lot of the early games. Um, But I just thought like this is fun. It it seems like decently true to the story. And I don't know. I just thought it turned out really well. And then, of course, you have like the first generation of Marvel adaptations because that technically falls in that same realm. You're adapting Mm -hmm. a comic book series or a set of comic book series. And I mean, that just like took the world by storm. That was phenomenal up until like, uh, what the fuck was the last one? Infinity War and then... Endgame. Endgame, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I blanked on that. You know, I'm bad with names and titles. Um, Like all of that was absolutely fucking phenomenal. Some of the movies were better than others. But that was like a great way to adapt that type of media into live action. And then also thinking about Disney. Disney has been coming out with a slew of live action adaptations. All of them have been okay, in my opinion. Some of them have been bad. But one of the early adaptations that I thought was really, really good and kind of came out before this like hype around their live action adaptations was the Cinderella one, which was, um, what's her fucking face? Lily James. Lily James. I, I'm we so had bad this with names. Discussion before. I know. And then the guy who played Rob Stark from uh, Game of Thrones. I thought that was a really good adaptation. It stayed very true to the story. It evoked that same feel that you get from the 2D animated Cinderella. And so I think that there are some solid ones out there. But then I go to things like Dragon Ball Evolution. <laughs> yeah. And 
uh, like we said, like the newest Tomb Raider, um, the newest Uncharted. What else has come out that's just been like a total flop? I think about the live action Death Note with White Turner. Like, come mm-hmm. on, people. What's going on here? Yeah. But like with anything, there are diamonds in the rough. And I, I think that The Last of Us might emerge as one of those. I know like Rotten Tomatoes has already given it a, a crazy high score. And it's it's one of the most or the second most watched HBO Max TV show in recent history, uh, I think behind House of the Dragon. So yeah, a lot of hype around it. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll see what the future of video game anime adaptations continues to be. Um, you know, since you mentioned all of those movies, I'll say the from my end outside of The Last of Us, I thought. Detective Pikachu was a great video game adaptation. That was actually really good. But was that rooted in anything like really, truly Pokemon? Or was that like they took Pokemon IP and kind of made an original story? Because I didn't, I wasn't aware of anything Detective Pikachu related before there that was movie came a, out. There was a video game called Detective Pikachu. Was it really? Okay. Mm-hmm. But I think just the fact that this this game took place in the world of Pokemon and it being a semi-original story rather than, you know, following the Red Trainer or Ash. Um, I think they understood the source material, even though some of the Pokemon in CGI form looked a bit wonky. But I think the story had heart, and it was definitely nostalgic for old fans of Pokemon and brought in new fans of Pokemon as well. So, Oh, when I forgot to mention... These are all going to be like early video game things, but um, I thought the Silent Hill movie was good. I don't remember when it came out. I don't remember who was in it. I just thought like, this is a pretty decent movie for a Silent Hill adaptation. You never saw that one, did you? No, I don't watch horror films. (laughs) Well, you should watch it. I thought it was good. I haven't seen that one in years either, but I remember it being good. Um, But yeah, I mean, to your point, I think you, I, I think we as a community, whether it's the video game community the Marvel DC, like comic book community, anime community, we can tell when something is a genuine effort to adapt a beloved story versus a fucking cash grab. And hearing that The Last of Us is coming from, you know, PlayStation's own studio or Sony's own studio, um, and I believe the creators are like involved in some way or like consulted. Yeah, I think one of the creators of The Last of Us directed some episodes as well as helped write the script so there you go like that that shows that they are doing their best to create something that is like in its own right its own piece of work but still very much rooted in and respects the original piece of whatever video game comic book whatever that it's pulling from so when when that genuine effort is made we as fans feel that and we receive that and usually you you end up with a better end product. But again, sometimes you have like Dragon Ball Evolution where you're like, what the fuck was this? Who made these decisions? Why is this a thing? And then it just gets obliterated on like every website like Rotten Tomatoes. Although, isn't Velma the worst one now? Oh, yeah. I'm not a big Scooby-Doo fan, but people have been dragging that show through the mud for like, like the fact that like why it why it even exists? <laughs> yeah. so. Well, there you go, Dragon Ball Evolution. You've uh, gone up one notch, so that's something, I guess. And then there's, I think, the most anticipated upcoming adaptation is the Super Mario Brothers movie. 
which I think Nintendo. Chris Pratt. <laughs> yeah, the, the voice casting for that is kind of wild. But I know Nintendo is working with, I think it's Illumination Studios, uh, the, the same studio that did all the the Minions movies and whatever, and Despicable Me. Um, so they're working closely with Nintendo for that. So hopefully that makes it a little bit more malleable and a little bit more faithful to the things that make Super Mario great. So who knows, maybe we're being ushered into a new era of adaptations that actually don't fucking suck. We'll see. It's a little bit different with the Mario movie because that's CG. I feel like mm. CG adaptations like Sonic and whatnot, that's a bit like it's a different realm because you can do things with CD, CG, like 3D and 2D animation that you just cannot achieve with live action. But that's like a whole separate discussion for another day. We can certainly talk all about CG adaptations or like other movie adaptations like that. But yeah, keep me posted on Last of Us. And if I end up watching it, I'll let everyone know. And speaking of things that suck or maybe don't suck, let's talk about My Hero Academia wow. Season 6 Part 1. <laughs> well, hey, for those who have listened to our previous My Hero Academia reviews, probably most specifically the Season 5 review, um, you may remember that we just want My Hero to be good again. It's been a pain watching the slow decline of this um, you know, very popular anime series. And I, I feel like that was one of the the uh, takes that we left off on with the season six review. It's like, we just want it to be good again. Why isn't it good? Why is it getting worse and worse as time goes on? So now that we have the first half of season six, what are some of your initial thoughts? What are your first impressions? Granted, it's only half the season, so things could drastically change by the second half. But what are you feeling at this point? You remember that SpongeBob episode where he ends up in a Krusty Krab commercial and then he lets it get to his head and so he kind of forgoes how to actually work at the Krusty Krab until he figures out what the people want and then there's that one, I think it's the female fish, that says, that's what we've been waiting for. <laughs> that's That's the way I sum up this first core, just how impressive it was and how fresh it felt in comparison to season five because it finally felt like we were getting substance in the conflict between the heroes and the villains although it still confounds me that this is all happening within class 1a's first year at ua but i think that just kind of demonstrates the dire circumstances that the hero society is currently facing and i think i i kind of see now that Season four and five were feeding us bits and pieces to kind of prepare us for the all-out war that explodes in this first half. So I think in hindsight, we should give credit to those seasons for paving the way. But yeah, I think the wait was the wait in this case was finally worth it. Yeah, I feel similarly. I would say in the first several episodes of season six, I kept thinking to myself, could this be it? Were the manga readers right? Because leading up to season six's premiere, manga readers were like, trust us, it gets better. My hero gets better. It gets good again. And I was waiting for it. I'm like, is is My Hero Academia finally going to get good again? Are we going to, um, you know, have our request met? And I would say yes. I, I don't want to be too premature about it because 
Again, the second half could be a fucking, you know, flunk. I hope not. But so far, I'm impressed and I'm happy. And for them to actually take a an entire battle and extend that as like a full arc for a, a for half a season, that is a very risky thing. Sometimes that pans out really well. And other times it ends up being the most dragged out, annoying shit on the planet. And I would say for my hero, this battle panned out really, really well because there was tons of variety to what was happening. There was good pacing and progression of the battle itself, and it was high stakes. There's a lot of parts to this uh, battle where you're like, okay, we know this person's not going to die, or we know this person's going to escape, or, you know, whatever. You can predict it, but that didn't change the fact that it was still really entertaining and kind of had me at the edge of my seat. So I have to applaud my hero for making a very, very entertaining battle and making it work. I think this was finally a season in My Hero where I really wanted to find out what was happening next. I don't know if I really got that feeling from, I know for sure it wasn't season five and maybe a little bit in season four, but well, like it was, it was kind of like watching the, we talked about like the classic Marvel movies, um, just the, 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 the hunk of action and story that was just prevalent throughout this all out war arc. Um, it, it made my hero watching my hero just just fun again that's what i loved about this first half and on top of that because I, I completely agree on top of that i felt like they achieved something in season six that they could not achieve well in season five so the season five was like that second tournament arc and you could tell they were trying to give a lot of screen time to like all characters because my hero has like an absurdly large cast of characters, sometimes like needlessly large. And so they're trying to give like a lot of attention to some of the lesser, uh, you know, focused members of 1A, um, introduce people from 1B. And it was just like, I don't care about all these characters. It's just, like way too much all at once. This battle, though, in the first half of season six was done so nicely that it allowed many characters to shine without having to rush it without having to make it feel feel forced, and while giving them significant things to do, whether that was fighting the villains directly or just doing rescue for the civilians. Even the rescue parts were interesting. And that's where I, I, I said earlier that we might have to just give a little bit of credit to season five, because I'm sp thinking specifically of characters like Momo and, uh, what was it, Toko Tokoyami? The, the the flying the bird yeah yeah the, the bird guy <laughs> yeah yeah uh, just seeing how they have progressed in their own journeys as uh, hero students um, like it's not like going from zero to a hundred because we kind of see what they do in the tournament arc of of season five and using that to like applying their skills that they use in in that arc to what's happening in the real world here in this war arc. I, I know that season five was just, the way that they approached that was just really, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just say it was really boring, but yeah, I think that it kind of makes you appreciate seeing the students develop into the, the true heroes that they've become in this war. Yeah, it's like watching season five 
you need to watch season five to appreciate season six. It's mm-hmm. like how Clannad watchers say, you have to watch the first season of Clannad to fully appreciate the second season. I think obviously skipping season five is going to cause a huge gap in story continuity and you're going to be fucking confused. But just at the baseline, like, yeah, not having any of that build up and having any of those um, story beats would make season six probably less impressive. And I also really like that season six is doing callbacks to seasons earlier than four and five. Mm -hmm. Like things that we have, we've been waiting for or questioning for multiple seasons are finally being answered. Even if it's just like the smallest things, we're getting those callbacks. Um, And they're, again, they're infused in a way that is meaningful um, and makes sense. So it just doesn't seem like a bunch of random callbacks and and things are being thrown around. So there's execution here that is just very well done. And it's not just on the hero side. There's even the 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 my villain academia arc from season five, like that was just a pinch more interesting than the second tournament arc earlier in that season. But a lot of the stuff that's established there, I feel like becomes like it gets paid off here especially with understanding Shigaraki and his evolution into basic, like all for one's successor, right, at this point. But there are caveats to that that we see in this season that, again, without the My Villain Academia arc of the previous season, you can't really appreciate. And so to ease into our discussion as usual, let's start off with a discussion about the OP and ED. I feel like with My Hero... The, the OPs and EDs are, are a little bit homogenous across all seasons, but there are some unique points with these songs that we hear in this first core. So with the OP, we have the song Hita Muki, or I think it's translated to Single-Minded by the band Super Beaver. I know visuals in My Hero OPs, like I said, they, they always feel like, I think I mentioned this in the one of the previous season five reviews, if you were to line up all the My Hero OPs together, I probably couldn't tell you which came from which season just because they all look the same to me. I don't think this one does, though, because it has these really unique comic book or graphic novel-style visuals. And then you see the those like typical sound effects, like the kablams or the whoosh as each character is flying through the air or doing some action. I think it's a nice new touch to the My Hero P. And of course, you have it being centered around the big three. I call them the big three of Class 1A, which is Midoriya, Bakugo, and Todoroki. So that's always a treat. I feel slightly different. To me, it's it's a My Hero opening. It's It may look a little bit different aesthetically, but it's it's a My Hero opening. I enjoy it. I think it's 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 one of the ones I enjoy uh, like more than some of the others. Um, and I like the song. So yeah, I think it's a solid OP, but nothing about it really stands out to me. I still think the best one, and I don't know why, but the best one is the stretching one. I don't even remember what season it was from, but it's just them stretching. And that was different because every other My Hero opening is them fighting or like using their their quirks or whatever. This one was just everyone fucking stretching. So I think I enjoy it so much because it, it offered something unique among these OPs. Yeah, I think this one, it's just the, the kind of change in art style that I appreciated. And I think song-wise, yeah, it's your standard My Hero rock anthem. 
nothing substantial there. Lyrics-wise, it's kind of the same thing, the typical heroic, inspiring, like, go get em song that talks about, I think it even says going beyond, like, go beyond plus ultra, like going beyond to a brighter tomorrow. But I will admit, this is a lot better than last year's Carousel song. I <laughs> really did not like that one. I will say, though, I, I, I don't know. I felt like this was an opportunity to give us a really dark and intense OP. And maybe that's what uh, Carousel was attempting to do, but I just tried to put that one out of my mind. Because the, the core that it's tackling is extremely intense, very dark at times, and really puts people in, in, uh, in these ambiguous positions where you're like, are they good? Are they evil? I don't know. So I thought it would have been a, a nicer fit to have something that matched that tone but here it's it's literally just another My Hero opening that you could plop into any other season and it'll just fit mm -hmm. the overall My Hero to tone versus the tone of that particular season or that particular core. So you're saying that Sim should have done this OP. <laughs> I mean, that would have been really cool. <laughs> just like the rumbling for Attack on Titan. Moving on to the ED, we have the song Sketch by Kiro Akiyama. You might recognize that name because it's the same artist who did the OP for The Promised Neverland Season 2. One of the one of the few positive things about that anime. <laughs> um, yeah, this one, My Hero EDs, we usually don't pay attention too much. Like this one, you have, I think the key thing or the most significant thing is there's a juxtaposition between Shigaraki and Midoriya, of course interspersed with images of the heroes and villains that are prepping for the in or the oncoming battle what's interesting though is i i just watched the op on or sorry i watched the ed on youtube right before we recorded and there is a subtle hint to the importance of dobby in end of a story because there's a shot i think towards the middle of the ed where you see a hand hovering over the new number one heroes poster that quickly switches to Dobby's hand because it's covered in blue flames. So I think that was like a subtle nod to Dobby's true family lineage. So it was very interesting that they included that kind of like a, a spoiler out in the open and we didn't realize it. I think that the EDs in My Hero have more variety than the OPs. Because some of them are like, I think one of them was focused on the girls in one of the early seasons. Then mm, I think right. last season, they had one ED, which was them just like going grocery shopping or like going, mm -hmm. going to, I don't know, fucking anywhere, meeting up with each other. It was just more like a slice of life type of ED. And then you have, which is still my favorite ED. I think it's the one of the bulletin board with the pictures on it. And at yeah. one point, it shows all of the, uh, not only 1A class members, but other class members in the uh the, the later years and what they're doing like in their bedrooms like are they you know on their phone are they like you know just sleeping or whatever and you have it's so subtle you have that one image of mirio and he's in the dark and he's screaming and crying because of what happened to him i still find that to be like the best ed of all of them this one though again i was like it's a my hero ed i don't know the song's good the visuals are interesting um i like those little nods that you had mentioned but nothing about it stands out the way that um that particular ed does or like the slice of life one i actually did i i, I looked through the 
YouTube comments for the OP. Why do I keep seeing OP? The YouTube comments for the ED as I was watching it online. And there was one comment that said there are actually four different versions of this ED. Oh, shit, you, really? Yeah. We skipped them, so. <laughs> well, yeah, because, you know, as the episode wrapped up, we were just polishing up our notes for the respective episode. But the four versions are there's the, the, the normal ending, which you can find on YouTube in the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. And then the second one is with Toga and Twice, where I think it's probably the episode where we see uh, Twice pass away. The third one is actually one that's focused on Bakugo. So probably that Bakugo. Oh my God, I need to go back and watch it now. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) And then the fourth version is Dobby's ending, which I think is also on Crunchyroll's YouTube channel. So I think that that kind of mixes up things a bit and makes it more unique to those pivotal episodes. But yeah, other than that, it's kind of just your your standard My Hero ED. Same case, or similar case with the song itself. Well, lyrics-wise, I think it talks about like two acquaintances that are yearning to connect or kind of reconnect with each other. Um, with lyrics like, your shaking hands were signal, yet I missed it so many times. Hey, a promise is just something to keep. All I really want is to hold hands. But I think symbolically, this might refer to the unique relationship between Midoriya and Shigaraki. And this kind of feels especially resonant with the final episode where, or the final episode of this core, where Midoriya sees Shigaraki kind of struggling and feeling like he needs to reach out. So maybe that's the deeper meaning behind this song. But again, kind of standard My Hero ED. All right, Strictly fam, there's no moo time to waste so let's dive into our synopsis and discussion for my hero academia season 6 the 2022 anime adaptation of a japanese superhero manga series written and illustrated by kohei horikoshi produced by bones and directed by kenji nagasaki the first core follows the confederation of pro heroes and ua students as they engage in all-out war against the newly minted paranormal liberation front though their mission to destroy the successors of All for One may be All for Naught. In episode 1, A Quiet Beginning, society is on the brink of all-out villainfinity war as number 2 hero Hawks continues his fearsome facade to learn the secrets of the paranormal liberation front and just what the fuck kind of physical therapy Supreme Leader Shigaraki is currently using. Meanwhile, the Japanese Justice League of Super Acquaintances splits into Alpha Team and Gold Team to respectively destroy the PLF HQ and stop Shigaraki's therapy session with Dr. Eggman. Gold Team rules as it successfully penetrates into Dr. Eggman's lab, but when the doctor starts hippity-hopping away, it's time to call in a brave and busty bunny for backup. We're immediately picking up where we left off in season five. That is always a plus in my eyes. I love when we don't have to miss anything. We get to just jump right back in. So it's a seamless transition. Good for you, My Hero Academia. And you can tell right off the bat, they're trying to sprinkle in or hint that there's going to be some parallels between Midoriya and Shigaraki this season, which I think is very much the case by the um, by the end of this first core. And then you've got Mirko. Like she, she's finally joining the fray. Mirko simps rejoice. I know there's a big <laughs> following for Mirko, so it's kind of cool to see her in action. Because I feel like we got introduced to her when they were, you know, telling us about the current like top heroes. 
But now she actually gets to show us what she's capable of. Is it just because of her dummy thick legs? Like why people are so fascinated with Chun-Li? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> she she is fucking built. And uh, we'll probably talk about it in a few episodes. But damn, her legs can do work. Yeah, it's actually the next episode. Um, one thing that was just great about this episode is I always feel like the first episode of a My Hero season is probably just going to be of like a like a chill out episode kind of easing us into things but I like with this one yeah it does it in the first half where it's kind of like Hawks uh, trying to get more info about the PLF to feed to the heroes just for them to begin their mission against like in destroying the paranormal liberation front but instead of letting that begin in the next episode it just happens here so we're right back into the action uh another thing to note is with the eye catches i know previously it was like the the profiles of certain students or heroes or villains and there was like a uh, a type out of some of their statistics they changed all that with this season because it's just like these character trading cards now it still has that same sparkly sound that we hear in the eye catches sparkly sound (laughs) yeah so it's a, a nice change of pace uh, that's established in this first episode. In episode two, Mirko, the number five hero, at the expense of her bad bunny bod, the number five hippity hoppity hero, Mirko, savagely beats the snot out of the high end nomus protecting Dr. Eggman as the UA students on Gold Team begin evacuating the surrounding area. Over the PLF's Chateau de Villain, the student spark plug Kaminari builds up some electrifying confidence to assist in Alpha Team's objective. After thinking up some unsolicited adolescent thoughts about Jiro, the headphone hero. Okay, Mirko is cool and all, but can we talk about this Kaminari stuff? Mm-hmm. Holy shit. So he gets <laughs> character development in episode two by like mustering the courage to protect everyone from the electricity. And then, most importantly, when Midnight tells him to think of what's Im- what's most important when he's on the battlefield to get, you know, to, to, to build that courage to, to help him push forward, they fucking super zoom in on Jito. I figured, like, he was going to turn, look back, and then, like, they'd show the whole class. Like, oh, my classmates, you know, I care about them. I want to protect them. But nope, they just fucking went for it and just showed Jito, like, full screen. And then even Tokoyami kind of knows because there's that flashback of him and Kaminati practicing guitar from season four. And Kaminati says he wants to do it, you know, do all of this for Jito. And I'm just like, dude, Kaminati Jito shippers are freaking out right now. (laughs) And I'm one of them. I really hope that this is the start of romance in My Hero. They've dodged romance pretty much the entire show when Uraraka said she's going to like put her crush on Midoriya to the side she's going to suppress those feelings and so it's been pretty flat on the romantic front just like tiny breadcrumbs for different you know shipping pairs and whatever so yeah people who ship Kaminari and Judo like myself are probably freaking out right now yeah it's nice to know that it's it's canon because you know at the very base of it My Hero Academia yeah it's a show about superheroes and what now but it's also a show about high school students. It needs the the slice of life aspects to it. And there's some really good pairs out there. Mm-hmm. So Mom- yeah, Momoroki. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Momo and Todoroki. <laughs> fuck yeah, I ship that. And then you've got Ashido and uh, Kirishima. 
Oh yeah, you kind of people get love a, them too. Yeah, you, you get a a little bit of fan service in this season with with that couple, and then of course later on with Uraraka, uh, re we're having to think again about her feelings for Midoriya when she faces off against Toga. So a lot of romantic buildup in this season, and of course in this episode that just makes us seem like it's going to turn back like into a CW drama or something. <laughs> it is a welcomed change. Thank you so much, my hero. In episode three, One's Justice. That was that was the title of one of the movies, wasn't it? One's oh, no, Justice? No. No. no, no, never mind. It was a video game, a My Hero One's Justice video game. Uh, was it the fighting game? Um, I don't know if it, it was it. Um, yeah, it was a fighting game. Okay. So maybe the the game took the title from this episode or... Vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, with all hero hell breaking loose at the PLF's Chateau de Villain, Hawks keeps Deadpool cosplayer twice at bay, despite the schizophrenic's realization that he spilled the beans that brought about this bloody battlefield. Despite the number two hero's best efforts to have him defect from the dark side, Dobby dives in for a distraction, but to no avail as Hawks drags the Deadpool double towards Death's desires. In his dying breath, however, the duplicating do-batter rescues his friends from a deadly division problem before he himself is subtracted from twice to zero. So, yeah, this season has been going hard right from the start, including a death in the first, yeah, first three casualty. episodes. Yeah, and it, it was pretty intense, too, and... As these episodes progress, they just like Twice's body is just there the whole time that like uh, Hawks and Dobby have like this exchange because they they hop back and forth between the different parts of the battle. So you just keep seeing Twice's fucking dead body with all the blood right there, and and Dobby keeps pointing it out to people like, look at this, look what Hawks did, <laughs> look what you did, he's dead right there. So I, I appreciate that they didn't hold back on some of these deaths. Um, I don't know if any of them are as intense as Twice's death, but it just adds to how high the stakes are. But I, I just thought of one of our friends. <laughs> like, I think we had invited them to watch the season four premiere of My Hero back when it was premiering. And he texted back saying, that's a kid show. <laughs> but this, is, this is one of the instances where it goes far beyond a kid show. Um, of course, with with the bloody casualty that Twice has become. And all the ass and titties in this oh, season, yeah, too. Of course, that yeah, that too. Um, but I think with Twice's story of him kind of identifying with the League of Villains as his own family, I think one of the things he thinks about it and he says is like, I was happy to be here. It just makes you think like outside of the show, like humans are all the same at their core. It's just our experiences that kind of define us and attract us to certain things. So I think in this case, Twice had found a family with a bunch of misfits who felt outcasted from the world, which inherently there's nothing wrong with that. I think it just come, those things come into question when you decide what to do moving forward. Uh, but it just creates this interesting dynamic where, yeah, the heroes of society, they establish themselves as a community, as a family. But you also have the the other side of the conflict where, yeah, they, they may be evil villains and such, but they too share the same sentiments amongst themselves. 
This is where you first get the hints of Dobby playing a significant role this season. And it all starts when Dobby says that he knows Hawks' real name. Because you're all like, wait, what the fuck? Like, that was not even a thought. Like, Hawks' real name. Like, why does that matter? Who cares? Like, whatever. I I would have never thought that that was a significant piece of information until Dobby said that. And Hawks is like, how the fuck did you know that? And we'll talk about the reasons why that's so important when we get to a later episode. But this was like... This was the moment where I, I figured Dobby is now coming out from behind the shadows and is going to do something crazy. Yeah, they've always like had him peppered in for whatever reason throughout My Hero, even though the focus has always been on Shigaraki being the leader of the League of Villains. So, yeah, I, I would say this season, like, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it uh, in a later episode, but this season placing so much importance on Dobby. Like, it blew my fucking mind. In episode four, Inheritance, after revealing super secrets about the both of them, Dobby prepares to turn Hawks into rotisserie chicken as the situation over at Dr. Eggman's clinical office becomes dire. Supreme Leader Shigaraki's back-to-tube is shattered by a heroic advance, but with the dry-skinned demon having acquired all-for-one in his therapy session, all it takes for him to table the turns in the villain's favor is to be jolted awake since i mentioned a a star wars reference on that synopsis i wanted to point out the the locations that are used for this arc uh i think the gunga mountain villa where the the paranormal liberation front's headquarters is based uh i think that's a star wars reference because my hero always uses star wars locations to name some of its own locations and settings i think gunga is a reference to the Gungans in Star Wars, which is the same species that Jar Jar Binks is from. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so make of that what you will. And then you have Jakku City, which is uh, where the hospital that Dr. Eggman is doing his experiments on Shigaraki is located. I think Jakku in Star Wars is the planet that Rey lives on. Uh, when she's introduced in episode seven, The Force Awakens. So a little bit of Star Wars trivia there for you. You also mentioned dry skin in your synopsis. And I just don't understand how Shigaraki can be so crusty looking when he's literally soaking in liquid. Like, shouldn't that have moisturized his skin at some level? I don't know. He just looks very, very crusty this season the more and more he's fighting. Well, it's kind of like even if you after you've showered and you've dried yourself off if you don't put lotion on after you shower your skin's still gonna be dry that's true he's just he's permanently crusty (laughs) it bothers me he's so crusty uh but anyway mirko shines in this episode she's so fucking intense pushing herself beyond like any pain and damage she takes on while attacking shigaraki's cap shigaraki's capsule because i believe the nomus are like stopping her at all costs including like stabbing her multiple times in her limbs but she manages to crack the capsule and that's how crusty ass ends up on the floor (laughs) and this whole episode is pretty much focused on the pro heroes working flawlessly together to take on the nomus but we also can't forget that the beginning part of this episode shows hawks still in this predicament with dobby and then dobby 
telling him what we assume to be like his real identity or like what connection he has that's really important. We don't get to hear it at this point, mm -hmm. but we know something big is going on with Dobby. There's a big piece of information that is is coming down the road. Yeah, at first I was like, who cares? I don't need to know his fucking name. But, <laughs> yeah, just, just seeing... And then we really do need yeah, to know his name. Like seeing Hawk's expression, of course, it, it makes you curious. And I think Dobby kind of reiterates that, like, what the League of Villains, or I guess what he wants to do is carry out the hero killer Stain's will, which is taking back what it means to be a hero, because I think Stain originally just thought that heroes had kind of buried their heads in the sand and conflated the idea of what it means to be a hero. And so, like, that's why he has such a disdain for modern heroes outside of All Might. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see how, like, what Dobby's ideologies are with mixing in the ideals of Stain, how that plays into what happens with his bombshell revelation in his connection with the Todoroki family and like all the dirty laundry that Endeavor has been hiding from the public. In episode five, The Thrill of Destruction, Tokoyami rescues his hawkish mentor from Dobby's fiery clutches but who fucking cares because Supreme Leader Shigaraki has become an absolute unit in turning the surrounding area into a fallout wasteland. Though he is plagued by a nagging migraine that won't shut up, Shigaraki doesn't bother taking Advil as he remotely commands his lumbering lapdog Giganto Machia to begin his Maki attack on Titan. The best part of this episode is when Fat Gum is screaming a bottom as Mount Lady's ass comes what? falling towards That's him. That's the best part That's of the this? best part. Oh, I was man. like, I did not expect that, and I just thought it was so funny. Uh, yeah, that was a, a great moment. But also really good in this episode is Bakugo refusing the chocolate bun from that old lady, saying that it would make him thirsty, when we all know he's just too soon today to accept her kind offer. But I was like, thirsty? Of all things to say to refuse a snack from somebody, it'll make him thirsty? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, he's got to be in tip-top shape for the rescue mission. That's true. On a more serious note, though, we have Dobby planting seeds of doubt in Tokoyami, when, as I mentioned earlier, he's like, look what Hawks did. Look what he did. He killed this man and says that even the pro heroes do worse things than the villains. I I think this is like a precursor to the announcement that Dobby will put out later in this first core to plant the same seeds of doubt in the, the, the country's population in general. I think that's just highlighted with his question, I think, to Tokoyami, which is, what did you come to save? It gets like setting up the breadcrumbs to present this expose <laughs> to the general public that we see later. Um, interesting that Shigaraki, he, he decays that hero Exilus. I don't remember who Exilus was. Yeah, there's a lot of like short-lived heroes and some of them die. And I, I had a really hard time keeping people straight. Mm-hmm. And then he just ends up stealing his cape. I forgot if it was because he... Did he say it was like he was cold or something? Yeah, he was like, it's cold or I'm really wet or something. I don't yeah. remember. <laughs> but such a kind of iconic costume, right? A, a, a red superhero cape, like the sign of a hero. But here it's being twisted around, I guess, symbolically by 
one of my hero's most threatening villains deciding to use it for nefarious means. Shigaraki's new powers are fucking OP. And I love the way that the reveal was done for his new set of powers, or at least his amplified decay ability. I actually felt the fear from the pro heroes as they were trying to figure out what the fuck was happening. Escaping from the decay that was overtaking the entire city. Several of them even died. Although, again, I feel like they were they were expendable, right? Like they were short lived. They were there and then they went. And then I was like, okay, that sucks. So RIP I, crust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who's crust? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that was really cool. Just the fear and the unknown of what was going on. Because we don't know what Shigaraki has been up to in the past four months. We just know that he's been increasing some of his abilities or maybe his like physical stamina. But here we're seeing exactly what um what's been going on what the doctor has been working on one interesting thing that i also pulled from this episode is i think midoriya gets here's a voice in his head um i think that that's a sign of what a danger sense i think is the other quirk that's built into one for all that is starting to manifest kind of warning him that you know shigaraki is about to unleash some shit uh i think at some point you see an image of the first one for all wielder. And I wrote a note here, like why does he look so much like Shigaraki? But I think even more so, has it already been established? Like who the original wielder of one for all is? Yeah. I think that they, they told us earlier, maybe in season five that it's, I mean, we, we definitely know now it's all for one's younger brother. Mm-hmm. But I think there was something even before this season that uh, established that. Okay. So then it's not, I don't know why I wrote this in my notes, but like the one for all wielder isn't related to Shigaraki, but it's more so all for one. But it's not like all for one is related to Shigaraki in any way. Maybe they look the same from a symbolism standpoint, trying to show us that history is repeating itself when it comes to all for one. Because mm. what he attempted to do with his younger brother and failed, he's now doing with Shigaraki. Mm, okay. And that, yeah, that's. I feel like that's a recurring theme, just trying to right your wrongs by passing it on to the next generation. Because yeah, you see that with All Might and Midoriya. You see that with All for One and Shigaraki. And you also see that to some point with uh, Endeavor and Todoroki. Speaking of danger sense, I feel like that's a second power of Midoriya's that makes him feel like Spider-Man because he's using yeah, Black Spidey Whip. Sense. Yeah, yeah, Spidey sense, and then he's using Black Whip as Spider-Man would use his web swinging through the city. He literally is swinging through the city in the season, <laughs> like Spider-Man would. So yeah, he's uh he's got a lot of Spidey parallels going on. He just needs to what crawl on walls next. <laughs> In episode six, Encounter Part Two, the PLF are DTF as they begin gaining the upper hand in the Villainfinity War with Supreme Leader Shigaraki's arrival. As Togo goes on a murderous killing spree in the wake of twice subtracting to zero, and the Makia Titan begins his marathon toward his master. So Midoriya and Bakugo begin a game of tag with Shigaraki in an attempt to keep him from stealing Midoriya's one for all quirk. But just as Shigaraki is about to scream, Tag, you're it. Gran Torino and Aizawa swoop in to stop the sucker's superiority. 
Though with the discovery that Shigaraki is still absolutely a unit despite his erased quirks and the arrival of his absolutely high-end Nomu tag team, it is clear that this game of tag is absolutely rigged. The tides have turned here, and this is where shit gets really interesting now that Midoriya and Bakugo are back in the spotlight and Shigaraki is after one for all. That's a, a turn I did not expect it to take, but it makes perfect sense because with Shigaraki having the all-for-one quirk implanted in him, he can take other quirks as he pleases. So now we're seeing more of these parallels between Midori and Shigaraki where they're both hearing voices from their respective quirks' original mm -hmm. owners, um, and it, it just it, it compounds from here once we actually enter One for All in a later episode and we have that dialogue between, well, I guess not Midori and Shigaraki because Midori can't talk at that point, but you get the idea. It's all mm -hmm. building on like Midori and Shigaraki being like the ultimate face-off. I mean, wh yeah, why wouldn't All for One want One for All to just stockpile all of these quirks, especially the, the biggest quirk of them all? Um, so my understanding is that like the Nomus were like test subjects uh, that Dr. Eggman produced in order to see if Shigaraki could withstand the abilities of one for all or, or for all for one. Uh, I don't know if they were made specifically to see if he can withstand it. I thought it was like the Nomu's abilities, like super strength and regeneration. Those were test test runs to find the perfect way to embed those in Shigaraki because mm. he is OP now. He Not only does he have the sort of awakened all-for-one ability that was implanted in him, he also has the super strength and regeneration of a Nomu, making him an all-around very deadly villain. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense because I think the end of this episode, someone comments, or I think it was, uh, maybe it was Aizawa? Somebody says that Shigaraki has become like the perfect Nomu. Um, so the perfect vessel for these quirks and these strengths to converge. Although we know that's not the case because he suffers from something that Midoriya has suffered from since acquiring one for all in season one. And we'll get into that pretty soon. I also wanted to point out before we move on to the next episode that the title of this episode you've noticed is called Encounter Part 2 but there hasn't been a title in this season yet that has served as Encounter Part 1. But this is because in Season 2, Episode 38 overall in the series was called Encounter. And this is the episode, I believe, where Shigaraki first confronted Midoriya. At that shopping mall, right? And he put his yes. hands around his throat. Yeah, and there was just the one finger that he didn't put around his throat because that would have caused Midoriya to decay. So kind of like a full circle moment here. Although I think this is like the first episode in this season where Midoriya is in the spotlight. Because I feel like he's kind of been sitting in the back seat pretty often in the recent seasons to allow for other characters' stories to shine, even though he's like the focal point of the series. But I think that's kind of understood because... He's still trying to learn how to fully utilize one for all. And so his true time to shine is just yet to be realized. But he does play a key role in the coming episodes. And so does Bakugo. Because Bakugo right. is the one person that was entrusted with All Might and Midoriya's secret of 
one for all being passed on. So when Midoriya makes a run for it, Bakugo, and I've talked about this before, like Baku, Bakugo, you know, on the surface seems like, um, like a meathead, but he actually is very perceptive, especially when it comes to battle. And he, if I remember correctly, he's one of the top scoring classmates of 1A um, because, again, he's just really good when it comes to uh, battle tactics and, and, and whatnot. So he immediately understands what Midori is doing when Midori runs away. And he doesn't hesitate to follow after him to help because he knows he's the only one with this this little bit of knowledge that is pretty important. Mm-hmm. In episode seven, Disaster Walker, the treacherous tag team nearly erases the eraser head until Midoriya black whips his adversary to get out the fucking way, leading to a three-on-one game of rocking Shigaraki's shit. Back at the PLF's Chateau de Villain, with the League of Villains secretly hitchhiking on his back, the Machia Titans marathon is temporarily disrupted by Mount Lady and Midnight, but with their efforts in vain, they believe the children are our future, as tranquilizer duties are passed on to Momo and her classmates. No pressure. In this episode, Shigaraki is starting to reject all for one, saying that he wants to follow his own will and doesn't want to turn out exactly like his mentor or his teacher. And that's interesting. I don't know if we would call that a parallel to Midoriya because I wouldn't necessarily say that Midoriya is rejecting um, All Might's teachings or trying to be something he's not. I think Midoriya is just naturally becoming his own hero while embodying his his own hero that he sees in, in All Might. But Shigaraki is almost wanting to cut loose from All for One now that he has that ability, now that he has everything that he needs to be the villain he's wanted to. He wants to make a name for himself. I think there is a kind of, maybe not parallel, but contrast because with All Might, All Might is allowing Midoriya to grow on his own while providing him with guidance on how to effectively use one for all. In All for One's case, there, his relationship with Shigaraki, he just simply wants to use Shigaraki as a vessel to further his own agenda. So it just really highlights like that mentor-mentee relationship that's happening in these two parties. Although, like All for One, I don't think you could consider a mentor to Shigaraki in this moment because he's not allowing his successor to grow yeah that's a good point it it does seem like all for one has more so been manipulating shigaraki and using him for his own purposes versus nurturing a future villain the way all might is nurturing a future pro hero so i almost wonder and i have no idea I, i don't read the manga this is like purely a theory that just pops into my head i wonder if down the road there will be some sort of altercation between shigaraki and all for one. Like, will Shigaraki try to get rid of all for one to be rid of him and to be his own type of villain and follow his own will? Or like, I, I just imagine this spiraling, like building and then spiraling out of control between Shigaraki and all for one. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Like, I, I know that in the by the end of this core, all for one comments on Shigaraki's growing resentment of him kind of reminds you like, uh, the Emperor and Darth Vader in Star Wars, like good, good, like let that let 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 that rage kind of build up in you. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it's just like all for one allowing that to happen because then he'll kind of blindside Shigaraki down the road, or if Shigaraki really is going to 
turn the tables and get back at all for one and just take the journey into his own hands. We also see Momo coming back into the fray. And I know that they've touted her as a potential leader um, due to her like strategic thinking abilities and all of that in past seasons. But then she kind of fell to the wayside. We haven't seen much from her. But now is her time to shine. Now she has to lead that particular group of Class 1A and 1B members to take on, I'm going to call them Machia. That's like the shortened version they call them, right? Machia? Yeah. Higanto Machia. Higanto Giganto? I guess I'm using like a Spanish pronunciation <laughs> for what. Yeah, Giganto Machia. But yeah, I just call him Machia. What I'm confused by, though, is that Midnight tells Momo it's illegal for her to make anesthesia. They may have talked about this in previous seasons, and I just totally forgot. But I kind of think, wouldn't the ideal situation when fighting against villains be to knock them the fuck out instead of like fighting them and letting people get hurt or potentially killed? Like if you just tranquilize their asses, then you can arrest them without having to hurt them or any of the heroes or any civilians. So why the fuck would it be illegal? I think given the situation, she should be allowed to make anesthesia. Right, because wouldn't you want to fucking subdue a villain? That's like a non-lethal way of subduing a villain. That's like one of the best options that they have available. Just knock Mm -hmm. them all the fuck out. Like that sounds fantastic. It's faster. It's safer. But yeah, I guess it's illegal. So whoever made that law is fucking needs to be. They need to go back and question that. Okay, I think that that's fine. I think it's fine if she makes the anesthesia. Yeah, I don't know if it was a previously discussed or if there's a reason that comes up later. Maybe someone can clarify without delving into manga spoilers. I mean, really quick, I do recall that they talked about her limitations when it comes to the law, her limitations on making different products from like an economic standpoint. Yeah, that makes sense because you wouldn't want her like making things illegally and selling them and then like disrupting those types of things. But when it comes to actually fighting villains and doing her damn job, let her make an anesthesia. I think that's totally fine. Should you be able to make weapons and anesthesia? Maybe that's like... That's one of the things that the villains are so disillusioned with is the red tape that surrounds the hero society. Oh, yeah, yeah right? that's a good point. Not allowing quirks to to thrive on their own. Uh, so, yeah, it'll be nice to get clarification on this, but that remains to be seen. In episode eight, League of Villains versus UA students, Momo sets up some booby traps, hee <laughs> hee, for the Machia Titan with the help of her classmates, but the lumbering lapdog isn't buying a cent of it, until Kirishima takes a cue from Thanos by declaring, fine, I'll do it myself, and chucking into the Megamoron's mouth a piping can of go the fuck to sleep, even though he doesn't, with all that said and done. Back at the decimated clinical office, a damaged but ever-determined Shigaraki blows Gran Torino's gasket and offers Aizawa a lethal shot of Quirk Begone. Since it takes full effect at his legs, I can't say Eraserhead can accompany it with a chaser. This was a really good episode. I loved it. And it's full of slow-mo shots like throughout the entire thing, but they all work really, really well. So you've got the UA students you know, trying to knock out Makia or whatever, but it's not until Ashido makes her attempt, followed by Kirishima, that they sort of succeed in, I guess, maybe not immediately slowing him down, but getting the anesthesia inside of him. 
But then we see that flashback, um, Ashido's flashback that caused her to go through like some trauma and she kind of freaked out in the moment. And that's when she recognized Makia's voice as the same voice from back when something happened to her. I honestly completely forgot. Do you remember what that whole flashback was? Because I recall that flashback in general from a previous season, but I don't remember the details. Um, yeah, I don't know if that was something that was addressed in season five. I feel like we did see something. We did. I, I remember it. Like, I remember there was there was a moment where she talked about, like, I don't know, like maybe getting attacked by this dude or something because in the flashback she's crying and she's scared. I just don't remember the details. I just don't remember, like, what happened and why it was so traumatic for her. Okay, I read the My Hero wiki about, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm just going to say Makia. I was going to say Higanto Makia, which I just said again. Anyways, I, I'm reading the article about Makia, and I think it does contain a screenshot of an episode we saw in season five, a flashback where Makia was threatening Mina and a friend to find the location of a certain hero's office. And it also involved Kirishima because Kirishima was there to witness it, but he was too frozen to kind of defend Mina in that moment until she built up the courage herself. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it, it kind of, this moment with Makia kind of defined both of their stories. So I think it, it comes full circle here where, you know, like Mina is obviously traumatized by having to to face Makia again, but then Kirishima finally fulfills what he wanted to do back then by coming to Mina's defense and shoving the anesthetic into Makia's mouth. And speaking of Kirishima and Ashido, those shippers must also be losing their minds, having that moment where he comes to her rescue and says he wants to protect her and says it's only he was only successful because Ashido had gotten her part of that role done by getting, I guess, like up to where his hands were before she kind of freaked out and he jumped up and, and brought the anesthesia the rest of the way. And I just want to comment on the music, especially for this episode. I feel like it's very symbolically used and it's just nothing short of brilliant. So props to the series composer Yuki Hayashi in this episode in the beginning there's like this techno remix of what is called the my hero academia theme that plays during the introductory recap so it's a nice fresh take on a theme we've heard before it's not you say run but it's another song that's i think it's titled my hero academia and then as makia is being lured into the student's booby trap i think they use the song that was played in the climax of All Might's battle against All for One. That's just very dramatic, but also triumphant, which is, it's great that it's using it because it shows that, you know, even though this music is assigned to like the number one hero, the symbol of peace, it's this secondary cast of characters that gets to act with this blaring in the background, kind of showing how much they have grown in their journey as heroes to the point where they are, like living up to All Might's ideals. And then I just love this as Kirishima in that moment of fulfillment pushes onwards and makes Makia take his take his meds. You say run plays the the exact theme for All Might. And I just I love it because again, that just shows how much 
Kirishima has grown as as a student or as a hero student to the point where he can actually act on a sort of promise that he made to save Mina that many years ago. Things go from, I guess, a, a positive note to a more um, not like negative note, but just a questionable note when we we hop over to the Shigaraki end of the battle. And Shigaraki is saying all these things about um, like his own family issues and that heroes abandon their families to help people they don't even know. And this makes Gran Torino remember his conversations with Shimura and questions, you know, did we make the right choice? It, it's frustrating to watch because you know, Shigaraki doesn't realize that the reason Shimura cut ties with his dad was to protect him. She even says that, like, if I continue to have a relationship with my son, he's going to get in harm's way. So I have to just pretend like I don't have a son in order to keep him safe. But because that message was never shared with, with Shigaraki's dad, he was very salty about it and therefore passed that saltiness on to Shigaraki. So it's sad because you wonder if if there was better communication or other alternatives to that situation, would Shigaraki have ended up the way that he is? It's just shitty anime parenting at its finest, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's just, it's also eerie because with Stone Ocean, quote unquote, currently out, you, you see a, a similar storyline in, in that series. Um, but yeah, I think here it's just, and I know Shimura had the best intentions, but, you know, communication would have avoided your posterity to turn into a very dangerous villain. Yeah, and I mean, Shigaraki's dad was a kid at the time, and there's only so much reasoning you can do with a kid, but at least making that attempt could have turned the tides for Shigaraki's fate. But instead, here we are with him going absolutely apeshit in Jaku City, and I have to say, the last part of this episode was by far the most intense with Shigaraki crushing Gran Torino and then Midoriya absolutely losing his shit and basically like choking out Shigaraki kind of in a parallel parallel to what happened at the mall when mm-hmm. Shigaraki put his hand around um, Midoriya's throat and then Shigaraki shooting at Racerhead with a deleter round. All of these slow-mo parts were so well done and just like amplified the insanity of the situation and it just—it was such a fun ride. This whole episode was a fantastic, fun ride. But at the end of it, I was also like, I doubt Gran Torino is dead. There's no way. There's no fucking way he's dead. Yeah, you see a lot of characters that carry this plot armor in this this core, especially Bakugo. I think after the the next episode, well, literally okay. That'd be crazy. <laughs> you kill off Bakugo this soon into the story. I mean, like, what the fuck? Oh, I think that would have significant impact on Midoriya's journey. It would, but there's a lot still left to be done in terms of his his like friendship with Midoriya. Mm-hmm. We're not at a, a clean enough place yet where I think Bakugo could realistically die. I hope he never dies. I fucking love him, but I think it's just too soon. There's still so much to be flushed out with his story and Midoriya's story. True. But yeah, the, the fact that they, I know we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but the fact that they had Bakugo skewered, I think it, they just wanted to play more into the shock factor. But for this episode, I love that the cliffhanger, you see the the bullet or the delete around hit Aizawa's leg. And then I think the episode just ends with a zoom in on his eyes. And you don't know if his erasure quirk disappears. 
And <laughs> granted, we watched these episodes one by one, so we didn't have to wait for that next week to get the cliffhanger resolved. But man, that that's an intense cliffhanger. In episode nine, Katsuki Bakugo rising. Aizawa pulls a Herschel and cuts off his damn leg before the shot of Quark Begone can take full effect. With the Machia Titan slowly approaching and Supreme Leader Shigaraki getting his second golden wind, all hope seems lost for Gold Team until Midoriya realizes that unlike Reggie, Shigaraki's body is not ready and holds the villain high above the air to show everyone what a little bitch he truly is. The dry-skinned demon's survival instincts kick in before he can become a villainous pot roast by Endeavor's hands, so he intends to skewer Midoriya in turn for his lunch, until Kachan voluntarily gets stabbed instead to turn it into a Baku BQ. Katsuki Bakugo Rising episode title? Let's <laughs> fucking go. Of course, you would the, love this. The second that flashed on the screen, I was like, yes, this is my time to shine. Before we talk about Bakugo... We'll talk about, of course, what happened right before that. So Racerhead chops off his fucking leg like a badass to avoid the deleter round. I don't know how he can cut through all that flesh and bone that fast. With but a little knife. I know, but he did it. I mean, he's got super strength, I'm sure, to a, to a certain degree being a hero. And then we see images of Eri-chan, and I think it's it's got a dual purpose. One, it's because... Uh, Eraserhead wants to be able to keep protecting her. And the most effective way to do that is to continue having his quirk and his superhero abilities. But then two, there's the hope that Eddie can reverse Mirio's situation and get him his quirk back. And now possibly Eraserhead as well. Like if she can uh, reverse Eraserhead and grow his leg back. So that small chance leaves him the room to make a drastic choice like this drastic but necessary choice like this of slicing off his leg and then as you mentioned in your synopsis we've got another parallel here between Midoriya and Shigaraki where Midoriya realizes that they're the same that their bodies need time and training to handle the quirks that they were given but Midoriya went about that the right way training taking time to do it versus Shigaraki who tried to cram that all in four months yeah Midoriya's like yeah I've, I've done this song and dance already <laughs> And now let's get into the good shit. And that's the flashback <laughs> of Bakugo talking to All Might. And uh, here I am with my Bakugo thesis once again. So as I mentioned earlier, Bakugo is smarter than he seems. He's perceptive. He's good on the battlefield. And in this flashback, he questions All Might about how long he thinks he can hide Midoriya's power from everyone. A very fair question that I think a lot of us have been wondering. What's going to happen when someone starts to catch on about Midoriya having uh, one for all. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like when people find that out, Midoriya is going to be in a hundred times more danger. And the situation with Shigaraki is the perfect example of that. Midoriya is in a ton of danger right now because Shigaraki wants to take that power from him. Bakugo also mentions um, like All Might's hiding something about the fourth user and how they died. I completely forgot about this, that there is like this like secret that All Might is um, still kind of dancing around. So Bakugo, Bakugo kind of like pushes All Might to admit it, but then All Might dodges the question saying he's not ready or maybe doesn't know enough yet to tell Midoriya, but I'm excited to see what that is. I want to know what happened mm -hmm. to this fourth user. It seems really, really important. Isn't it the, the same user who has danger sense? Yes. I believe Midoriya, yeah. when he realizes like where it's stemming from, he does say it's the fourth user. 
And then the flashback sort of like the conversation in the flashback sort of takes a turn and starts to look on Bakugo instead of All Might, where Bakugo reflects on why he bullied Midoriya so much, saying that Midoriya is the type to do anything to help other people, even at his own expense, and that that type of sacrifice made Bakugo really nervous around Midoriya. And All Might kind of calls him out saying, well, that's probably why you're discreetly trying so hard to help him train and to help him grow, maybe to atone for all of those times that you were a jerk to him. Um, And it's probably because you are worried about him at the end of the day. So I think that signals a lot of growth in Bakugo to actually admit that like he bullied Midoriya um, and try to figure out why he was so compelled to do so and in his own way try to make things right for Midoriya. Excellent thesis once again by Courtney. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it boils down to like Bakugo didn't understand why Midoriya was so selfless uh, when it came to being a hero. And like for Bakugo, it was always about him trying to reach the number one spot, almost like Endeavor was in the shadow of All Might. But I think he Bakugo reaches a a sort of nirvana here where everything suddenly clicks. And as much as he's like, he's not really treated Midoriya as a friend, he knows that in this moment how crucial Midoriya is with him wielding the one for all quirk that he does the most unexpected thing of Bakugo, which is to sacrifice himself for another person. Yeah, and I love that in the seconds leading up to him jumping in front of danger from Midoriya, we see flashbacks of all the times that Bakugo bullied Midoriya or stayed distant from him. And he says in that moment, like without even thinking, his body moved on its own and then gets stabbed by whatever the fuck is coming out of Shigaraki's body. And in the earlier flashback between All Might and Bakugo, All Might reminds him that he once, I think, told him that, that Bakugo reminds him of Endeavor. But mm-hmm. he clarifies or expands on that in this flashback, uh, saying that he said that because Bakugo is kind of changing the same way Endeavor changed for the better. That was my my takeaway from that. He yeah. wasn't saying, like, you're like Endeavor because Endeavor's an asshole. He's saying you're like Endeavor now because Endeavor is trying to right the wrongs of his past. Right. And that's that also comes into play later once we learn more about Dobby. Uh, I know this this episode plays out that trope of we're getting significant backstory of a character, which means that they're about to die. And so that was the case with Bakugo. But you have to realize that he's narrating this part. So he can't have died if he was narrating what he did in this moment. Also, there's just no fucking way. I remember when you were watching this episode, I was like literally on the edge of my seat, kind of like glued to the TV. And then you made this noise, like this like gasp noise and looked right at me. I'm like, no, 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 there's no way. There is Mm -hmm. no way Bakugo is going to die. It's just a moment to show like a bit of Bakugo's growth when it comes to Midoriya. And what's interesting is like immediately after the flashback between All Might and Midoriya, Midoriya proves Bakugo's point and, and his reason for worry because I think when he's fighting Shigaraki, he says, I'm going to keep using 100% of my power even if it destroys me or some something to that effect. Mm-hmm. So again, he's doing, he's pushing himself way beyond his limits if it means- Be Going beyond plus ultra. There you go. <laughs> even if it means sacrificing himself in order to save others. 
fantastic character development in this episode. I know people it? love to shit all over Bakugo. <laughs> I know it's weird that uh, there are fans like me that love him, but there's a reason, okay? We're seeing some interesting things with Bakugo. Every character has their own things that they're going through, and this is Bakugo's. Yeah, I guess as much as it would have been great for Bakugo to have his exit here, it might have been ungraceful, but... Exit? You wanted him to die? No, I didn't want him to die, but oh, what do you I, mean by I, I guess I guess I would have accepted if he had died in this moment because as I, I said as I said God. earlier, this would provide Midoriya with a significant like significant incentive to go further in his mission to become the number one hero. Yes, I could see that, but again, I still think there's just like so much that needs to be done between that friendship that we're mm-hmm. just not there yet. But that means maybe at some point down the road, there could be a an opportune moment to kill off Bakugo. I just hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, that, that's another thing. Like This would show how there was unfulfilled potential in Bakugo. And so Midoriya could take that and like not like use that as a burden, but again, something to carry him forward. But we know like, Bakugo's fine. Like he, he's, He'll live to fight another day. So we'll see if he meets his demise at some point later on. <laughs> In episode 10, The Ones Within Us, spurred by the sight of the Shish Kabakugo, Midoriya goes Mob Psycho 100 on Supreme Leader Shigaraki, leading the pair into the realm of One for All, where Shigaraki's grandmother and All for One engage in debate over who gets custody of One for All. Midoriya wins because Shigaraki's body turns out to not be an absolute, absolute unit, so we shift our focus to his high school crush, Ochako who's about to throw down with Toga after she interrupts Gold Team's rescue mission. We see inside of One for All again and learn from All for One that his little brother's power has the side effect of transference. He he kind of explains it the same way that there's that theory about uh, organ transplants, that when someone receives somebody else's organ, the there's something that happens where like they may start to develop some of the same preferences or taste um, preferences Mm -hmm. or like, you know, just things that, that resemble the original owner of that organ. So that I think he's kind of explaining it the same way. Like both Midoriya and Shigaraki are going to have traces of the people who wielded those quirks before them because of that type of transference. I also find it weird though, like that all for one is sort of residing in Shigaraki the same way that the previous One for All users are residing in Midoriya, but All for One is still alive. Mm. I don't get that. I don't understand what's happening there. Yeah. I don't know if that's that's like a quirk that All for One might have carried, like transferring a piece of your soul into something else and being able to use that, like in this case, being able to use Shigaraki as a proxy. Because I don't think that with with All for One being alive, I don't think it's like him, let's say, for example, using telepathy through that quirk that he transferred to Shigaraki to like talk to him and manipulate him and control him. I think it's more like, again, the transference piece. Like there's, like you said, like there's bits and pieces of All for One's will that are kind of mm-hmm. acting on their own the way that All for One would act. But yeah, it's, just, it's weird to me that he's alive in the fucking prison and yet he's also kind of like in Shigaraki's head. Yeah, maybe he's just taking this gamble, knowing that 
so some of the transference that has gone into Shigaraki is going to carry out all for one's will. Because my theory is like all for one in the actual prison, like the the physical all for one has no fucking idea what's going on right now. Mm, it's just really? his, like you said, mm. it's his will that's like manipulating Shigaraki's brain. Oh no, I'm saying that he's he's gambling that his will in Shigaraki's brain is going to allow his whatever his plans are to unfold no yeah but it's not actually what but what you're saying is it's not actually all for one the physical body Mm -hmm. like the actual dude over in the prison isn't like literally controlling those things isn't literally saying those things to shigaraki or like telepathically transmitting those thoughts Mm -hmm. it's just like what he embedded in him is acting the way he had planned it to act it's like the horcruxes in harry potter i i don't know the reference but that's the way i can understand this playing out and then there's Toga and Uraraka, their whole scene. I don't, I, I, of all the things that happened in this first core, that was the one part I didn't care about. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of significance there, but we'll talk about that in episode 11, titled Dobby's Dance. Ochako and Toga have a fight about feelings, but anyways, Makia Titan has completed his marathon towards Supreme Leader Shigaraki, where Dobby ends up stealing the spotlight by proclaiming himself to the world that he is Endeavor's eldest son, fighting through the fire and the flames to come back from the dead to air out his family's very dirty laundry. But never fear, a clean pair is here, as best genus has two risen from the denim dead. So I have to admit, I actually got spoiled about this Dobby reveal a long time ago. Yeah, (laughs) when I accidentally, unintentionally saw a manga spoiler on Twitter, so I've had to keep my mouth shut for quite a long time, and uh, yeah, it was like, the whole Dobby reveal is a huge plot twist, it's it's a big surprise, but then when you stop and think about it, you're like, wait, yeah, it kind of does make sense. He has the mm-hmm. same eyes as them. I mean, he dyed his hair so that we didn't know he had white hair. Yeah. But he's using fire quirk and even says Endeavor, like, fire quirks are a dime a dozen. Because I was thinking, like, how is Dobby using fire, Um, you know, like the Todoroki family? But mm-hmm. I think we maybe were thrown off the trail because his fire is blue. Which but- is like a more lethal fire, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. In, like, the hotter- real world. Yeah, the blue fire is hotter than red fire, um, if I believe, if I remember correctly. And I, I think they address this. So I think in Dever's flashback, he says that he saw that uh, Dobby had even more potential with firepower than what what than the abilities that Endeavor had. So it makes sense, like maybe Dobby was training his greater potential to the point where he can burn so hot it turns blue. But then Endeavor presumes him dead in some fiery accident. Right, because they couldn't find a trace of Dobby anywhere. Yeah, he thought his son had died, even though he had held out hope that um, he was still out there and he searched for him. They all assumed that he had died in that fire because they think they said they saw or they found parts of his jaw and those were some of the only remains. But I think he Mm. probably got burned up, which is why he's got the weird skin attachments. And they have the staples. Okay, but they never explain the context of how that incident happened. Right? No, I imagine we'll get more of that at a mm-hmm. later point. But yeah, it was just a very quick, like, oh, by the way, this is how it all happened. Yeah, I think Dobby here is kind of living out Stain's will by exposing the fraud of heroes and wanting to live for their own self protection and their, their self affirmation. 
again, putting themselves in a bright spotlight, but hiding all the negatives um, underneath it. And I think that there's something similar that happens with uh, the case of the beginning of this episode, which focuses on Toga and Uraraka, where, you know, it, it's them. Part of it is like them addressing both of their feelings for Midoriya. But then Toga talks to Uraraka about how she's had to kind of suppress her quirk about like taking people's blood because, you know, like obviously there's something terrible in doing so, but she takes the blood of those she loves and she asks or she tries to explain to Uraraka that it's hard for her to, to, to suppress those feelings. I think as maybe in a way to, for Uraraka to understand what her plight is, like she can't just help that she's she is this way. But then Uraraka just kind of dismisses it by saying, like, you, you can't do this because it's wrong. And I think that's why Ura, uh, that's why Toga kind of escapes the situation when Froppy comes in with tears in her eyes because Uraraka doesn't understand. I, like, I don't know if Toga is trying to reach out for help in this sense or that she just wants Uraraka to understand where she's coming from. And I think that's another fallacy with heroes is that they just see that, oh, this is bad, but they don't understand the plight of why the outcasts here, like the League of Villains, are going through these things. Okay, that's interesting. Because again, I was kind of like not into the whole Uraraka Toga scene, but I didn't think about it that way. Because that is a, a running theme with the villains is they they all had an opportunity to be saved, um, but mm -hmm. they weren't because they just couldn't see eye to eye with the heroes. Or rather, the heroes couldn't see eye to eye with them. Right. So that that's what we saw earlier in this core with Twice and how he found family in the League of Villains. You see that here with Toga opening up to Uraraka. And then here with Dabi, it's like, look at your failures. Like he's showing Endeavor look at your failure as a hero society. And I think that's one of the things that My Hero does very, very well. They infuse that ambiguity into the idea of good versus evil. They they put a lot of characters, especially beloved characters, in this middle ground where you could almost go one way or the other depending on your outlook. I think back to when the League of Villains captured Bakugo. They probably thought, he seems like a villain. He seems like he would understand us. Mm -hmm. of, co of course, ultimately, he he's proven that he's not into being an evil person. He just looks like an evil person and acts like an evil person. But I thought that was like a really cool moment for that. Um, and then I don't know what the fuck was the, the, the one dude who drank the tea and had like that sidekick. Oh, gentle criminal. Yeah. Gentle criminal. I remember that whole thing ended um, with him being interrogated, but like they hinted that he could actually be a good person and, maybe kind of redeem himself. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just, I, I appreciate that about the show and, and how well it does that. And then there's like a blink and you'll miss moment where obviously Endeavor is so distraught by this news about Dabi or Toyo, or is it Toya? Toya, Toya Todoroki. And Shoto Todoroki, who has, like we know he has a very tumultuous relationship with his, his father Endeavor, but... He calls him dad in this moment to kind of get Endeavor back into the fight. And I just thought that was a a very wholesome moment because even though, like, obviously Endeavor was a shitty father to Todoroki, Todoroki being Shoto, 
like Shota understands that like his father is doing his best to to reconcile with his past. And so just that simple act of him calling Endeavor dad, that was, was a very moving moment. Yeah, I think we've talked about this in our previous My Hero um, reviews where I, I actually love Endeavor. I love his story. I love how hard he's trying, how genuine he is about being not only a better hero, but a better father and a better person. And I root so hard for Endeavor. So seeing how distraught he was and that he genuinely tried to find his son and like was absolutely devastated that his son um, he presumed was killed. It just hurts that much more to hear Dobby talk the way he's talking to his father. But I also appreciated when Todoroki started calling him dad instead of Endeavor. I think it was the family bond coming into play. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Todoroki in that moment set aside his feelings, his, you know, maybe his resentment of Endeavor and realized, holy shit, I have a, my, my older brother is alive. This is a big deal for our family. It's it's family time now. It's it's time to think like a family. It's time to support my family. So I'm going to call him dad instead of Endeavor. But we know who steals the show this episode. That's Best Genus. Okay, Best Genus <laughs> probably has the craziest plot armor to survive not only getting demolished by All for One, but then getting like fake killed by Hawks. He's got mad plot armor Mm -hmm. but i did like bakugo's look like the look on his face when he saw best genus because we all know that bakugo was pretty worried about his mentor even if he didn't straight up admit it they they dropped hints about that i think in season five when he like quote unquote went missing um so it's nice to see that i i mean bakugo looks pissed off but i'm sure that's his version of looking relieved you know why best genus has so much plot armor why it's in his genes. Wow. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to episode 12, Threads of Hope. Best Genus commends Alpha Team and Gold Team's efforts to pull down the PLF's pants, though a weakened Shigaraki manages to command Machia Titan to zip them back up again. But fear not, dear listeners, for a Miracle has arrived to further save the day empowering the battle-weary heroes to become gamers and rise up once again to the occasion, where Midoriya decides to break up the Todoroki family drama. Bakugo also decides this would be a good time to tell everyone his stupid hero name, so the villain Compress decides to upstage him by pulling a Hugh Jackman in an attempt to become the Infinity War's greatest showman. Hell fucking yes. My boy Mirio is back. <laughs> we Aries fucking spoiled, did it. We kind of spoil this for ourselves though. Yeah, because you I think we're so we we're watching this on Crunchyroll, and I think when you hit next episode, Crunchyroll went two episodes ahead. Yes. And that second that one over episode um started off like in the first like five seconds showed Mirio yeah. flying in the air. And I'm like, oh wait, what the fuck just happened? I guess Mirio's back. But either way, it was still hype. Damn crunchy roll. But yes, <laughs> it was great to see Mirio back in back in full effect. And the way I know they kind of soft teased him when he hit one of the Nomu, but they didn't show his like face. They just showed like parts of his costume. But the way they like truly reintroduced him was fucking great with his face popping out of the ground. Like I love when he does that. He pops up out of the ground. It's just his face or he pops out of a brick wall and it's just his face or he's floating down the river. It's just his face. I love it so, so fucking much. And of course, it's great news for Eraserhead's leg because now Mm -hmm. we know he can get his leg back yeah good on erichan for using her powers for good this time instead of for <laughs> the yakuza 
it was just it's just amazing that there was just reveal after reveal after reveal in just these two episodes because you have Dobby revealing himself as a Todoroki, then you have Best Genist who comes in to save the day, and then you have to top that with Muriel coming back. It's just <laughs> like it was just elevated every level, and I know that earlier one of the episodes earlier mentioned like it had the heroes i think the students that were uh over at the the chateau de villain where they were questioning if they had done the right thing in trying to stop machia and i think here best genus like i said in the synopsis comments on how the the teamwork that has happened across these two operations have come together to build up these threads of hope so really emphasizing that you know despite its flaws hero society has the coordination and the camaraderie to really work for the greater good in this all-out war against the plf and then there's bakugo's hero name which he's oh been my God. he's been saving <laughs> yeah. for best genus i think he said in the previous season he wanted best genus to be the first one to hear it so he he took the opportunity because who knows best genus could fucking die at this point why not tell him now so this is for sure his hero name? I, I bet it's not, but I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out, I guess, if he changes it again. So if I if my notes are correct, Bakugo declares his hero name as Great Explosion Murder God Dynamite. <laughs> I love when Ida actually calls him that. <laughs> oh, he does? like oh, Ida yeah. did something or like he called out to him, but he called it by his hero name and used the entire name. It was so funny. I like the the dynamite part of it. Like everything else, you can get rid of. I know. I think that's pretty cool because it has like ties to all might. Like right. you could say that, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if they spell it a certain way. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you know he's always said like Lord Murder God Explosion. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted to put that as his <laughs> name. So, yeah, we we get it here. And in the final episode of this core episode thirteen final performance, wanting to preserve the treacherous ties that bind the League of Villains. Compress turns his body into beef chucks to allow the teenage mutant ninja lizard a moment to literally give Supreme Leader Shigaraki a hand. This in turn summons All for One to use the dry-skinned demon as a megaphone for the high-end nomus to retreat with Shigaraki and leave the villains in the dust as punishment for their poor team performance in the day's brutal battles. Midoriya tries to catch up to his arid adversary, and despite his failed attempt, he presumes that Shigaraki is just a poor boy nobody loves him. What does this mean exactly? That, dear listener, is a question for another day, as the saga of My Hero Academia Avengers, Phil Infinity War, draws to a close. I didn't care much about Compress's backstory. I don't know. They just kind of like threw that in at the end. Like, yeah. Again, he felt expendable the whole time. Like he, he did some stuff, but didn't really do much, so... It is what it is. Um, but I am glad that the fight ended or the battle ended at this point because it was just barely starting to feel dragged out. Like I started feeling some of those like, okay, come on, let's go moments. Um, so the timing was good. I'm glad that it, it concluded at this point. And I think it 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 left a lot of questions to be answered. Um, but I also feel like it didn't feel like a victory for the heroes. I I don't think they can call this a victory. They just held out long enough for the other side to give up. So you can tell it's not a happy moment. It's not a happy conclusion. They look back on everyone who got injured, 
everyone who got killed, the destruction. So there's going to be a very, um, like a very tense tone, I think, leading into the second core. Plus, you have to think about the public's response. I mean, yeah, there is the physical destruction, but the spiritual destruction, like of the the trust that the public has in the hero society, especially with uh, uh, Dobby using skeptic to broadcast uh, across the masses about all the dirty laundry that is behind the number one hero endeavor. I think some of that is salvageable now that Best Genist is alive and back in action because they can at least take those parts of Dobby's message and say, look, he's fine. He wasn't killed. Dobby's lying. You know what I mean? Like try to discredit some of what he said, but I don't know how they're going to work around the Endeavor stuff because they could just lie and say, oh no, the the Todoroki family is totally fine. But you know, what will that do at the end of the day? What value does that bring? Or do they just own up to it and try to make amends? But at the same time, it's also like, it's his private business. That's like their family thing. Um, like I get there's like the moral questioning aspect of it when it's the number one hero. But uh, if Endeavor's doing his job and saving people, you know, maybe there is hope. Maybe they can forgive him. I mean, that always goes back to the ideal hero that was All Might, the symbol of peace. Because I don't know if we really get much of All Might's backstory, but he was just good for the sake of being good. There was no baggage with that. And I think that goes back to the hero killer, Stain, always saying that he wanted to die by All Might's hand because he envisioned him as a true hero in this society. Like As much as Endeavor has been trying to get to that point of being revered as All Might, he still has all that baggage with him. And not to say that that's like a fair judgment on Endeavor, but it just really puts into perspective what it truly means to be a hero in this world. I think the last seed of ambiguity that they leave us with in this episode is Midoriya saying he can't forgive Shigaraki for everything that he's done, but he also recognizes that there was a small part of Shigaraki during the one for all like moment when they were all inside of one for all that felt like he was calling out to be rescued or wanting to be rescued so we'll see what Midoriya does with that because something like that doesn't weigh lightly on Midoriya and I think that too plays into the idea of what a hero is in this society of heroes because Midoriya is reaching across the aisle to someone that he rightfully hates and loathes but I, just that the fact of that being such a like being a virtue that Midoriya wants to champion, yeah, that that plays into his willingness to sacrifice himself and work for the good of others. And really, I think that's you know it's like it's almost like him saying this is the story of how we, I became the number one hero. As much as that spoils it, I think this is what's leading to that moment. And that brings us to our final thoughts for My Hero Academia Season 6 Part 1. So we won't give an overall rating yet for this season since it hasn't concluded yet. But I will ask, do you think that this season has gone beyond and plus ultra the fuck out of the filler that was Season 5? Oh yeah, it's already significantly better than Season 4 and Season 5. I'm hesitant to say that My Hero is good again, that it's back, that you know, we you know, My Hero is on top 
because this is just one core, one really good core. We'll have to see how the rest of the season goes. But I can confidently say that it's getting good again, that there is a lot of intrigue. There's um, a lot of compelling storytelling for a lot of different characters. It's not just All Might and Midoriya who have like the coolest stories. I think Endeavor has a fantastic story. I'll always think Bakugo has an interesting story with his own internal struggles. Um, I think, well, I thought Mirio had an interesting story, but, you know, we, we found out that there was a resolution there, but that, that's great to hear. Uh, Shigaraki, who I generally not really cared about, is actually starting to become interesting in his own right. So it is getting good again. And I'm really excited about that because that's what we've been wanting for a really long time from My Hero is just for it to feel the way it did in seasons one, two, and three. So I'm very hopeful. I'm pretty impressed. And I am, I have my fingers crossed that the rest of the season is just as good. Let's hope it keeps up this trajectory. What about you? Yeah, I think this explosive start to season six has definitely put my hero back in the W column for me. Because not only do we get our usual helping of bombastic action sequences courtesy of Studio Bones, but we are equally treated to some very overdue plot progression with Shigaraki 2.0 and the jaw-dropping revelation that contributes to the ever-growing Todoroki family drama, which is then adequately peppered in with instances of character development for the quote-unquote bench players of my hero, the... (laughs) I was like the second tier heroes and of course like the other students of class 1a the supporting characters (laughs) (laughs) although I will admit that the sort of ping pong storytelling between the two separate teams got a little bit confusing and muddled but it all came together in the end I think thematically there is nothing new with this arc that we haven't seen before in my hero or I guess any kind of superhero media really where it's just heroes doing heroic things for the good of mankind, while the villains feel like the heroes have their head in the clouds and are too hypocritical to address society's real issues. But I have to say that as much as Midoriya felt like the weakest link in the Society of Heroes, despite having one for all, like the most OP quirk in the world, the observation that he makes about Shigaraki in the last episode of this core is one that I will take to heart as the series continues. Because how much does this observation play a key role in discovering how Midoriya became the number one hero? And how might he possibly bridge the divide between heroes and villains in this regard? Or how does that shape the idea of a hero saving everybody when that everybody includes not just the people in immediate danger, but someone on the opposite side of the conflict as well? So I think all of these aspects have made season six such a grand spectacle so far, and it has definitely made My Hero fun to watch again. So as with you, my hope is that the series just keeps this energy going, especially with answering all the questions left in the wake of this Villainfinity War. So the second core better not crash and prominence burn. Nice. (laughs) We'll see. Of course, we'll be back with our part two review of season six when the season concludes. 
and we'll find out if our prayers are answered for my hero to just be fun, to be a good watch, and to not be a chore as it has been the last two seasons. But yeah, I mean, props to them. They, they put together a great battle sequence and they've got my attention. Thank you, as always, to all of you guys for tuning in and joining us for the My Hero Review, and thank you for joining us each and every week. As always, subscribe to Strictly Anime on your favorite podcast service, join our Discord to chat with us, follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series, on Twitter at Strictly Series, and check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com. If you'd like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash thestrictlyseries. And tune into Strictly JoJo, our other podcast dedicated to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. All links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb.